Welcome to episode 100 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. This is another milestone, 100 episodes. And to help me commemorate this special milestone is my special co-host, Bobby Chacon. Hey, Bobby. Hi, Jerry. Congratulations on your 100th episode. Thank you. So I've been doing this for two years. I plan on continuing to be the host and producer of this podcast until I can't find another retired agent who's willing to give me the honor of helping him or her tell their story. And uh, we told your story in Episode 8. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Sure. So if anybody's listening and you haven't heard Episode 8 with Bobby Chacon, we talked about what you did in the Bureau. So that was Jamaican drug gangs and as one of the founders of the FBI dive team. Right. Underwater forensics at its infancy. So that was a really exciting episode, so I I do hope they uh, go back and take a look at that. But you also came back for the 50th episode, and at that time, we did a whole episode just about what people get wrong about the FBI and books, TV, and movies, 10 cliches and misconceptions, and this time, we're calling it the FBI in books, TV, and movies, 10 more cliches and misconceptions. So why don't you tell the folks why you are qualified to talk about this subject? First of all, both of us are qualified because we're both retired FBI agents. We've been there. We've done that. But uh, what are your additional Right. Well, like you said, we both obviously are extremely familiar, intimately familiar with the inner workings of the FBI and what what it does and how it works. Um, beyond that, uh, you as a you know fiction writer and uh, myself in television, I've now um, been a technical advisor on a major network television series, Criminal Minds Beyond Borders, where I work with the writers, the directors, and the cast members, the actors, in in getting it right or as close to right as we could, given the creative constraints of, you know, a fictional television series. Um, beyond that, I've, I've uh, now, I live in Los Angeles, and I am pitching television product uh, projects and, and feature films and, and writing them and consulting on them. And so I've gotten to develop a keen sense of the relationship between the creative process and the real world. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that you see, particularly on the military law enforcement side, either in television or in movies, you see the phrase, based on a true story or based on real events because, you know, it's really difficult to make things that accurate um, and still keep it within the confines of, say, a 90-minute movie or one-hour television show that's going to be entertaining at the same time and, and tell a story. And so, you know, real life just doesn't play out that way. And so it's it's, you know, virtually impossible to be 100% accurate when you're doing these things outside of, say, a documentary, you know, a true nonfiction documentary setting. So once you move away from that, there are immediate compromises that start to have to be made. And, 
you know, you try to do the best you can and you try to keep it as true to life as you can. And that's been kind of my role is working with, you know, writers, you know, and I, I find that in writing my own, my own things too. I have to make the same compromises because you just can't fit it all on a page or in an hour or in a 90 minutes, say, for a movie. And so a lot of, a lot of these things that we went over previously or we'll go over today, you try to do, you try to cut where you can cut and you try to leave the more important things in. Um, I think that it, it probably frustrates a lot of law enforcement agents in particular when they see the FBI, you know, doing things that they know, you know, doesn't happen in real life. But it's just one of those, it's just one of the compromises that have to be made in the real world, in the real world of TV making or movie making. Right, or, or book writing. Or book writing, as, you, as, as is your field of expertise, sure. Right. I do just want to go over my qualifications for talking about and, and pointing out these cliches and misconceptions. Uh, one, I was an FBI agent, but the last five years of my career, I was the spokesperson for the FBI Philadelphia Division, which means I was responsible for educating and informing the media and the public and the general public about the FBI, especially trying to mold how people saw the FBI and what they got wrong and uh, right about the FBI. That was my actual role for the last five years of my career. And in that role, that meant that I was in front of local and national news media. I also was able to consult with crime writers like the best-selling author in Philadelphia here, Lisa Scottolini. I worked with producers and directors from the History Channel, America's Most Wanted. I was actually featured, one of my cases was featured on American Greed. And I've worked with big budget films like Shooter, which was uh, directed by Antoine Fuqua and filmed in Philadelphia. And of course, I'm a crime fiction writer. I'm just about ready to publish my second book. But the probably most important thing that makes me knowledgeable about this issue is that I've interviewed now more than 100 retired agents and they frequently brought up different myths and misconceptions, not just about the FBI, but specifically about the violations they worked. And some of the ones that we're going to talk about today came directly from those interviews and also from what my listeners suggested that I clear up for them. But some of these things that we're going to be talking about when we say cliches and misconceptions, some of them are intentional, that sure. writers and directors and producers intentionally take creative license for the purpose of, like you said, creating drama and making the plot move faster. Right. A good example for me is my first exposure to television was through the series Criminal Minds Beyond Borders. And so our true, our, our team of profilers, like the Criminal Minds regular show, was, went overseas every week and did another profiling case. And as you and I both know, that overseas, the FBI has a big presence overseas. Again, that's maybe something that most people don't know, but it, it's in the form of a, what we call legal attaches, and they are responsible for their country or a couple of countries. And so whenever you go to a country like that, when I operationally worked in a different country, you'd always have to interface with the league at first. They would pave the way for you. Um, you would meet with them. They would have to approve your trip in advance, things like that. Well, our show 
our guys had a jet. We would land in, say, Italy, and the back of the plane would drop down, and our team of heroes would walk down and shake hands with the Italian police right at the base on the tarmac of the runway. No mention of a legal attache, no mention of a country clearance, of the State Department approving the trip in advance. And, you know, that was one of the things where I knew and I cringed every time we shot that opening sequence of each show each week, knowing that there's a whole, you know, hundreds of thousands and maybe thousands of agents out there watching going, look at this, they just they just completely cut out the fact that there's a process and a procedure to go through. You have to get State Department approval. You have to meet with the league at or the assistant league at of that country, you know, um, but because we had 42 minutes in a one-hour show to tell our story, those are the things that don't move the action forward. So we kind of omitted that part of the story necessarily. And we'll go over that because two of the things that you mentioned are part of the 10 more cliches and misconceptions. So we will be able to tell everyone what the right procedure is. But I do want sure. to say that two reasons that I think this topic is important is one, if somebody is reading a book or, or watching a show or a movie and they see these obvious misconceptions and cliches and issues, it can actually throw them out of the movie or the book, you know, as far as their mind settling into the story and feeling a part of the action. All of a sudden, it's like, what? That's not right. And they're kind of just taken out of the story. And nobody who is an author or a director, or an actor wants that to happen. Right. Very much so. I mean, yeah, you you need, you know, a, a good story has that depth to it, right? The detail, you know, and the depth of a story, the richness of a story comes out in in those details, in the accurate details that you're talking about, that if you leave them out, the the depth and the richness of the story gets lost. And so your audience gets lost. And the second thing, you know, the reason that, you know, we are going through some of these cliches and misconceptions is that if a movie or a book or a TV show gets it wrong, then there's a potential of there being hundreds of thousands of people out there who now have inaccurate information about the FBI. That's not good either. No, and in fact, I mean, we saw this, is it's kind of a recent phenomenon, but not that recent anymore, where what we call the CSI effect, right, in the forensic world, where you had a whole, you know, generation of people being raised on watching this very super popular CSI series of shows, right? It had a franchise. It had three or four of them at any given time. And there were fictional things in those shows, uh, forensically, that were done that people took for fact. And, you know, later on, there were so many of them, and there was, that was such a popular show that it made it into the mainstream psyche of, of the population. And you started seeing, and prosecutors can tell you that they started seeing jurors expect law enforcement agencies to be applying certain forensic techniques that didn't really exist and and not to say that csi was an inaccurate show they they relied a lot on their forensic experts but they did the same thing they would you know make compromises for the sake of the story knowing it was a fictional story and they would create some technique possibly that would be used and then you'd have a juror somewhere you know discounting a government investigation because they didn't apply a theory or a technique that didn't exist 
And so you had sometimes had jury nullification of certain things. And so this is how it leaks into the real world. These are real world consequences of these type of things we're talking about. Absolutely. So let's start. We have a list of 10 more cliches and misconceptions, and uh, some of them just flow right into each other. So we'll start with the first one. And that's about who the FBI is. We'll talk about who makes up the FBI, and then we'll talk about what the FBI agents do. And there is a misconception that the FBI only recruits former military, former law enforcement, and attorneys and accountants. Now, I know you are an attorney. Right. When I came in, it was kind of at the tail end of that kind of uh, thing where you know, traditionally, the FBI actually grew out of the justice. We were a, we were a bunch of Justice Department attorneys a hundred years ago that needed to be pushed out into the field to do work. And so, yeah, they were almost all attorneys in the beginning, and then accountants were added because they were mainly focusing on white collar crimes and things like that. And so, I think you know, I couldn't put a number on it, but I would say probably when I went to the FBI Academy in 1987, it might have been 40 to 50 percent of my class was either accountants or lawyers or even maybe more. But I do remember even in my class, like we had a recruit that was um, the major, uh, the college major was a uh, photography. And I thought that was really unusual. Um, now I've learned through, you know, just being uh, exposed to new agents as they come into the Bureau and hearing their backgrounds are so varied. Now it's, uh, I think if you, I don't know what the percentages are now of new agent classes at Quantico about the the percentage of attorneys and accountants, but I would imagine it's it's extremely lower than it had been 30 years ago when I went to Quantico. Yeah, I would think that former law enforcement and military has kind of replaced that. But in the same respect, there are so many jobs that you wouldn't even imagine. I mean, people like teachers, nurses, sales managers. I know somebody who was the owner of a martial arts studio, and, of course, we have Dr. Joe Dezino, who I interviewed on this show, who was a dentist. Right. And um, and I knew one of the agents in Miami who was the ER, the evidence response team team leader, was a dentist. And on my squad in Los Angeles, I had a medical doctor who was a emergency room trauma surgeon before he came into the FBI, Dr. John Pye. And he's currently at FBI headquarters. But he's a, he's a very experienced FBI agent, but he was also, before he came in the FBI, a very experienced emergency room trauma surgeon at UCLA. So that's pretty interesting. So when you have a, a movie or a book, especially thrillers about the FBI and, you know, their former police officer or detective before, you know, you can, you know, I get permission. I get permission to writers <laughs> to shake that up a little bit and you can have somebody who was teaching school, was a college professor before they became an agent. It doesn't have to be uh, what you normally think of as the background of these people before they join the FBI. You know, we have a lot of engineers that come through now, computer scientists, things yeah. like that. Yeah, definitely a lot of scientists. I am amazed at the number of people that I've talked to on the podcast that have PhDs. Yes. It's not what you used to think of. I mean, we're, the FBI no. is looking for people from a, a variety of, of backgrounds, and that should be reflected in books and, and TV about the, about the Bureau. 
One other thing that I want to mention is age, because I, I have a show that I really like. It's called Good Behavior. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. seen it, but it's on TNT. Yeah, uh, it's really good. I really like it. But there's, there was a reoccurring character who was a female FBI agent. And the character was good, but the actress who played her was cast wrong, I thought, because she just looked too old for the part. And at one point, I realized that they thought that they had cast it correctly because she says that she's 62. And again, it <laughs> took me right out of the story because, as you know, right. there's a mandatory retirement for agents of 57. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think you get that on both ends, too. I've seen shows, you know, in Quantico, I think I've heard a lot of uh, complaints about that, that show where a lot of the agents look too young. While we, while you, you're eligible to join the FBI at 23, most of our, I mean, the average age of my academy class I know was 30. It was a little over 30, just short of 31, I think. I was 24. I was the youngest in the class. And so as the average age of 30, which means, you know, if it was the mean age, half the people were over 30 in, in my academy class. And this is, you're talking about fresh new recruits being, you know, 29 and 30 years old. And by the time you're, off probation in your first field office, that means you're probably in your early to mid-30s um, for the average FBI agent. Right. And so all of these youngsters, you know, running around on TV shows is really not how a real squad looks. They're, they're much right. older, much more seasoned and experienced people. I do want to add one thing because I know I'm going to get a, an email from a retired agent or a current agent, if I don't say this, that mandatory retirement is 57, but an agent can receive a limited extension if their continued service is in the public interest. But most agents retire in their early 50s. I left at 51. Yeah, I left at, uh, yeah, I think I was 51 also. So most leave early because if they're going to have to get another job, you know, 57 is kind of young to retire, retire. When they want to go out, get out of the FBI or leave the FBI when they're still marketable because ageism exists, you know, even for FBI agents. Oh, absolutely. And I think that you're right. I mean, that's, and that's the actual turning point where you're, if you're looking at a, you know, a second career at 51 or 52, even a potential employer is looking at you completely differently if you're 57. I mean, that's only, it sounds like only five or six years, but I think those are a crucial five or six years for an employer that may want to get, you know, 10 or 15 years out of you. And if you're 57, you know, 15 years, you're looking at your 70 years, you're working into your 70s, which if you already have an FBI pension, you probably won't be doing. So that potential employer, and like they shouldn't, like there are, there are laws against that, but, you know, how, how do you ever tell, how do you ever prove something like that? But I think, I think that most agents feel like getting out when they're eligible for their pension at 50 um, or in their early 50s is, is the better a route to take if they're looking for a second career. All right. Again, to to writers and uh, producers, if you are writing a book or you're doing a movie about an FBI agent, shouldn't be too young and they certainly shouldn't be too old. That's going to take somebody who knows right out of your movie and take them uh, right off the page. So you mentioned this before. You mentioned Quantico. So number two in our list of cliches and misconceptions is that female FBI agents are running around wearing low-cut, tight-fitting clothes. 
Yeah. That really, I, I tried to watch that show. You know, first of all, I got distracted by the main character's beautiful mane of hair. It was just, I would, I would just watch the show and just say, is that her real hair? But right. I'm, yeah, I'm sure other people were distracted by the cleavage because, you know, come on. Uh, yeah, you know, female FBI yeah. Agents, I tried to watch it as well and could not. Yeah, you know, female FBI agents are going to wear the attire that's appropriate for the environment. We are not going to try to look like the guys, but, you know, if there's an arrest or a surveillance, then, you know, we're going to have the khakis and the tennis shoes on and the baseball cap on too. But, you know, when it's time to go to work, then, you know, we're wearing the appropriate business suit or, or dress with a jacket to cover our gun. Yeah. Just like anybody and, else in, in business. You know why this one gets to me, too, Jerry, is because um, this is one of those, it's, it's, it's such a superficial one, and it's one that you can just turn on your 6 o'clock news or your 5 o'clock news, and you can see real FBI agents, you know, nightly almost. Uh, you can see, like you just said, with the, with the utility pants, the khakis, and the, and the FBI shirts, or you can also see them in their suits and ties and, and their business attire as they're walking out of an office after serving search warrants or whatever. So there's plenty of stuff. I bet you can go on YouTube and you can pull up video after video after video of real FBI agents and how they dress from news clippings probably all over the Internet, certainly all over YouTube. And so you can do your research and you can see what they actually look like. Some of these other misconceptions you can't get that kind of, you know, proof positive. But I think that since this is an appearance one and enough FBI agents appear on TV, not, you know, specifically for a sit-down interview where they'll, of course, dress appropriately, but when they're walking in and out of a building or a bank robbery or something like that where you get news footage of them, you can see them in their normal business attire. And anybody that wants to put a little effort into, you know, researching that, I think on the Internet and on YouTube, you'll be able to see that. And what you won't be able to see is a lot of cleavage. No, because it doesn't happen. That's why you won't see it. <laughs> That's right. Um, another thing that I always see female FBI characters shown as young, single, and childless. And that right. is just, you know, female FBI agents have families and are married just like their male counterparts. And I'm kind of getting tired of seeing that sad, lonely, single agent who the only things that, that she has in her life is her job. Female FBI agents, just like their male counterparts, have families. It can be done, but you're going to need support. It's like any other high-pressure position. You know, right. You're going to need somebody to, to make sure you, that they're there to pick up the kids you know, when you have to work late or somebody who is able to take care of the kids during the day because you know, you're going to be gone. Uh, for a, a period of time. Right. To me, it's kind of a easy way out or almost a lazy way of writing is because, because it's such a cliche and you just copy a cliche that's been, you know, redone over and over and over again to make her the, the single focused, doesn't care anything about anything but her career and, th you know, things like that. I actually faced that in, in Criminal Minds Beyond Borders because Gary Sinise, our lead FBI agent, you know, in that series insisted on being a family man. He didn't want to be an alcoholic. He didn't want to be a broken guy. 
guy, a broken hero. He said, I'm going to be married with a, in a good marriage. I'm going to have kids. I'm not going to be divorced. And then Daniel Henney, who was our second male lead, he was the younger guy, and he says he actually came to the writers and said, look, I'm not going to be the cliche younger playboy running around. with." A, and so his character was also a married guy with children at home who would go home every night, and he wasn't the philandering playboy young you know, FBI agent and stuff. So I think that, you know, at least in our series, that, that was one of the really nice things about the writers when they listened to that. And so we had a really rich backstory with our characters and their home lives and stuff. And, and both Gary and Daniel actually insisted that, you know, that happen and that they don't become the cliche. Gary said he didn't want to be the older, you know, seasoned, broken guy who's, you know, belly up to a bar all the time and he's divorced and all that kind of stuff. So although that happens, I understand there are agents out there that that happens to, you don't have to constantly reinforce that particular persona all the time, because more often than not, there are agents who have successfully had careers and families, and we always say the FBI is a big family, and you come to family day at any field office, and you see all the kids running around and, and things like that, so... You know, I think you're right. I think that that's that's just it seems like just an easy way for a writer just to kind of put it on autopilot and write that character because they've seen that character you know so often. But what about the female characters on on your show? Um, female the, the, there, were, there were two. There were two because our team was four. The female lead, Anna De La Garza, her character um, was uh, widowed from an FBI agent who had been killed in the line of duty, and so she was married to an FBI agent who had who had recently been killed. He was actually killed just before our show starts. The timeline is, and they actually, she's actually kind of recovering from that. But she, you know, again, kind of an accurate thing because there are a number of agents that are married to other agents. And um, so she had just lost her husband, an FBI agent, killed in line of duty. And then the one, um, so she was widowed, and then the uh, second uh, female lead was uh, single. So she was, a, but she was a forensic, she had a forensic background and, and stuff. But they were rich characters, but so one was widowed and one but was neither, single but, on the female. But neither of them had children. Neither of them, you're right, you're right, neither of them had children. Uh, even Alana's character was, she was widowed, but I, I don't believe she had children. All right. Enough said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you win all some right. of the battles, you don't win them all. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. All right, number three. On so many shows and so many books, you see one agent handling the entire case, the entire investigation by his or, or, or herself. And as we know, it, it takes a village. It takes a team to work on major investigations. Yeah, boy, this is probably probably near the top of the list as far as agents I talk to who get frustrated with that in movies and TV and, and actually uh, law enforcement in, in general. Again, I hate to harken back to CSI, which is a great show, but uh, CSI on the local law enforcement side and even Criminal Minds on the FBI side where you have profilers who are running out in the street and doing investigations and arresting people and stuff, and, you know, that just doesn't happen. Same token, the crime scene investigators, you know, they usually issue a report, You, the, the detective gets the report, the forensic report, and then uses it and adopts it into his investigation. I worked with profilers when I was an agent. You get a profile and you use it in your investigation, but it's not the profilers that are running around you know, putting cuffs on people and doing surveillance and doing interviews and interrogations. So, so yeah, this is probably, you know, the most common one 
if it's not the most common one that's committed, it's certainly the most common one that I get complained to about by friends who are in law enforcement or agents. And we can explain that. I do, I do understand the use of composite characters because there is not enough time in a TV show or a movie or even, you know, a 90,000 word book to have all these different characters developed enough to play a good role in, in the script or, or, or in the plot. So you're going to have to use one character as a composite of everyone. And I know that there were complaints about different TV shows that have been on TV about real life things, but they've been dramatized and they create one character to cover everybody who contributed to the investigation. Yeah, I recently watched a movie called Patriot Day with Mark Wahlberg, which I loved. Um, and they actually used, it was about the Boston Marathon bombing, and they actually used the real names of the FBI special agent in charge and the police chief and a lot of the other characters, and they would identify them with a graphic during the movie. And I knew what the names were, at least of the FBI personnel. So I knew they were using real characters. And then during the course of the movie, the Mark Wahlberg character, who's obviously the main star and the lead, he's a Boston police officer, he does so much during the movie, so many different things, that after the movie, I got on my laptop and I actually went in and researched it because all mainly most of the other characters were actual people that I knew participated in the case and I gave this guy's a Superman doing all this stuff and sure enough that one character Mark Wahlberg's character was a composite character of probably half a dozen people officers who had done different things during the investigation but because of the movie and the story they they you know combined it all into one character and so I just, I had to do that because I knew so many of the other characters were actual real people. But that one character was a composite, and I just, because it blew my mind in all the things he was doing and the places he was. He was in Boston, and then the, the, the chase moved out to a jurisdiction outside of the city of Boston, and he showed up there again. And I'm like, wow, that's unusual for, you know, a city police officer now to be outside his jurisdiction you know, on a different day. It wasn't like a chase happened. You know, it was, it was a chase, but he, he wasn't part of it. He just showed up and, and stuff. So in that particular context, they, they used a lot of real characters, real-life people, but they also, that one character was a composite. And I think that we need to stress again that we understand why this happens. Uh, it's, it's a matter of, you know, time constraints, but we just want to make sure that People who are writing or reading or even people who might want to join the FBI one day understand that, you know, you're going to need help when you're working a case on surveillances, on searches, on arrests, monitoring wiretaps, transcribing tapes. You know, all of that is done by a whole team of support that helps you with your cases. Right. So the next one, another cliche and misconception, as you see these books and and TV shows where the undercover agent appears to be running the case. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, This one actually is a pet peeve of mine, actually, because while I did some undercover work as an undercover, more than that, I did a lot of cases where I was the case agent using or utilizing the undercover process and procedure. And I knew how much work it took for me, not being the undercover, 
to, you know, to operate that. I was the one that drew up the scenario. I got it approved through the undercover committee, uh, both in the field and at headquarters. You know, I auditioned basically the undercovers to see who was going to be best at the role. I gave them their script in many instances. And, you know, you had good undercovers who could stick to a script and, and improvise when it was appropriate. And then you had others who left the script long before they had to and improvised when they shouldn't have or didn't have to. And so I knew how much work it took. I, you know, I, I often said the, the easiest job is the, is the undercover, even though it's more, maybe more risk. You know, uh, a lot of times I was in the office hours and hours and hours deep into the night after the undercover's already home. And so this one is a particular, particular peeve of mine having, having operated a lot of undercover agents, uh, in my time. Now I like to say, that the undercover agent is the actor playing the role and that the case agent and the administrative agent, sometimes they're the same people, they're the director and the casting agent. You know, Absolutely. They're, they're the ones putting together this project and uh, the undercover agent is uh, under their direction and, and, and um, you know, playing that role for the bigger picture. Absolutely. That's absolutely an accurate thing. And if, you know, if you ever were on a movie set or a television show, there's no question who's in charge. The director's in charge. And, and, and even when there's a big star involved, the director's in charge. The director's calling the shots, you know, because ultimately, you know, the project uh, rises or falls on, on him. And, and so you're absolutely right. I used to write the scripts. Nobody knew my, my bad guy better than me. So when the undercover was going in there, you know, I could tell him, you know, what to say. I, I left it to him on how to say it, but I, I wrote for him what to say, and I knew how my guy, my subject would respond uh, almost always. And so nobody knew my subject better than me, uh, not even the undercover. He had to deal with them face-to-face, but I knew that subject inside and out. So uh, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. They're, they're again, just like just like I was with the dive team, a tool of the overall investigator. That undercover is a tool that I used, and believe me, they're very courageous and they're very smart and they're very good at what they do, but they were one of a number of tools that I used in my investigations. And sometimes they worked and sometimes they didn't. Uh, but at the same time that I was working them as one technique, I might have had a Title III up on the, on the a wiretap up on the subject's phone. I might have had a physical surveillance unit following the guy. So I was getting information on my subject from multiple different sources, not just the undercover. And I guess I should add director, casting agent, and producer, because when we yes. talk about the work that we have to do, uh, you know, you're going to have to figure out the manpower. You're going to have to figure out the money that you need, you know, that, that you're going to have to request from FBI headquarters. Sure. Uh, I know when uh, and I had a, 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 a major group two undercover, and you're right, just the amount of time that you have to spend on administrative duties is unbelievable, too. And you're always worried about you know, you're, you're overspending money or you're not documenting, documenting the, the, the funds that are spent. So there's all of this to do. And again, not taking away from the undercover. They are specially trained under intensive training program uh, to make sure they're suitable for being undercover. They're evaluated. They play a very important role. But when it comes to 
and investigation, they, again, are playing a part, and the case agent is still the person in control. Right. Okay, so number five, moving right along. This is one that you touched on earlier. It's about agents jetting around the world in private jets in order to conduct investigations. We're going to talk about jurisdiction, the second part. Right now, I just want to kind of talk about the private jets that you sometimes see on TV and read about in, in, in books. Most agents, first of all, are not even going to leave their, yeah, right. uh, their, uh, their, their division. You know, if you have a case and you cannot articulate why you need to go someplace, you're going to set a lead. You're going to write up a communication and you're going to set a lead of the questions and the investigation that you need and you're going to send it to the other office. Say it's happening in Chicago and somebody in Chicago will be assigned that lead. They may talk to you on the phone. You may be able to communicate with them and really give them an idea of what you want. But if you can't prove that the FBI or your division needs to spend the money to send you to Chicago, then they'll have somebody in Chicago do that case for you. So there's no private jet. No. I mean, the Bureau does have a private, well, they have a jet that belongs to the director, and the director flies around on it, and sometimes special missions happen. But the routine uh, everyday agent, even on a major case, does not get on a private jet. It's just not going to happen. And normally, even when you are, when you do get permission, well, when you do get authorization to travel, say, if I was traveling from New York to Chicago, the special agent in charge of the Chicago office would have to be briefed and approve my travel from New York to Chicago to carry out that, you know, whatever investigative activity I'm going to be doing there. And you can bet he's going to have somebody that's assigned to him in Chicago uh, with me while I'm in his division because the FBI, the 56 field offices of the FBI, each have a special agent in charge, um, and they always are responsible for what's happening by any FBI agent in their territory. So they want to know if there's FBI agents from another field office operating in their territory, and they want to have control of that. So you just can't just kind of go into a different territory and be operational. It's, it's just not happening. Now, I don't want it to sound like I'm saying that the FBI doesn't use private planes. The FBI does own and they do lease planes for deployment to respond to crisis events. So why don't you tell us a little bit about, say, in your case, when you were on the FBI dive team, how did you get your equipment? I mean, I'm sure you didn't get on commercial flights to do that. Well, there were three modes. Um, a normal domestic case, we would fly commercial and we would ship all of our gear FedEx, believe it or not. And say I had a job, I was here in Los Angeles, had a job in Seattle. We would send it FedEx, we would fly up commercial. If we were going overseas, because the FBI has four dive teams, each of them divides the globe into four, we would practice once a year. We'd drive out to March Air Force Base, get on Air Force planes, these big C-130, C-5, C-17s, and they would transport all of our trucks and our boats overseas. And we actually practiced that once a year. We would go to Hawaii, to the Marine Corps base, just to make sure our gear was all mil-spec'd and could get on the planes and operate that way. We'd take it off and Hawaii, get in the water, practice with it, get back on the plane and come home. There was, a, there was an operation we did in 2006 in, in Baghdad where all of our, well, actually southern Iraq, we had to fly to Baghdad and the Bureau leased us a chartered 727 plane. There were 
15 divers. Um, we got on and we did a circuitous route to get to Doha, Qatar, and then we took an Air Force plane into Qatar. So, you know, I've done all three. I've done commercial, I've done military air, and I've done private charters in my FBI career. Most common was commercial. Second most common was military, and then the third and more rare one was the chartered planes. The Bureau G5 that we had at in Washington, when I was stationed in Athens, Greece, doing the Olympics there, we would fly certain experts back and forth, and then when we when we flew some, you know, explosive material and things like that, we would fly it on the private the bureau's own private jet, which we only had one at the time, um, and they flew to Athens because I had tarmac access because I was assigned to Athens for a year and worked out of the embassy, and so I could get on the tarmac and meet our plane. Um, that was coming, but that was all special arrangements because we were helping the Greeks with counterterrorism at the Olympics. That was the first Summer Olympics after 9-11. The first Olympics after 9-11 was the 2002 Salt Lake Games, which I was also assigned to, but the first big, the Summer Games are about two-thirds bigger than the Winter Games, and so we were helping the Greeks with counterterrorism, and so we used the Bureau's private jet on occasion to fly things back and forth. One private jet, and there may be more now, who knows, but uh, a regular agent, if you're writing a book or writing a a screenplay, a regular agent is not getting on that private jet. And not only are you flying commercial, you're probably flying economy class. (laughs) Oh, not even probably. That's a definite. (laughs) You had to have three levels of approval. You could never fly business class. Definitely not. Definitely not. All right, the next one, and you touched on this before, and that is that the FBI can actively conduct investigations all over the world. And we are going to talk about extraterritorial jurisdiction, but in most cases, when you're talking about regular cases, the FBI does not have jurisdiction in foreign countries. So if an FBI agent wants to interview a witness or a subject in a foreign country, as you mentioned, they have to submit a request to, through the Justice Department, through our LEGAT, we have to obtain post-country clearance. Um, there's a lot of authorizations. You know, when I, I, I did have the opportunity to conduct investigations overseas during my career, and, you know, you had to jump through some hoops. I had somebody in France that I needed to interview, And France is one of those places where they don't want the FBI coming in and conducting interviews. So we had to get our witness to travel to Spain, where through the LEGAT, we were able to go and meet our witness in Spain to conduct the the interview. Yeah, I mean, we just don't, have, we don't have a jurisdiction. Just think of it in the opposite way. We don't, we wouldn't let any foreign law enforcement come into the United States and start operating things without our permission and without our control. So, you know, the sovereignty of these foreign nations are just as important to them as ours is to us. And, and so that's one of the reasons why we have such an extensive legal attache network around the world. One of their jobs is to maintain those relationships in those host countries so that when we do need either to go there or we need the legal attache or their deputies to conduct 
you know, an interview or a records check or something like that in those foreign countries, they're already there assigned most of the time. They speak the language. They've liaisoned with those foreign law enforcement counterparts, and they know the lay of the land, and they can get stuff done. And as you know, from conducting, you know, investigations in foreign countries, if you don't know the lay of the land, your entire time could be a waste of time and, and stuff. And so those ALATs and LEGATs, as we call them, um, are there to kind of pave that road if we have to go there, and they do a great job at that. They're almost always assigned to work within the embassy structure, so they're, they're at the hip with the State Department people that give us our country clearances. The ambassador always has to approve us coming in because, again, he doesn't want anybody from the U.S. government operating in his country because he's ultimately responsible for us, for any U.S. government person operating in his where he's the ambassador. And so if something goes wrong, he has to answer for it. And so the ambassador has to be briefed on what you're doing in the country, how long you're going to be there, who you're going to be meeting with, and things like that, and they have to approve that in advance. Uh, so there's a multi-layered approval process, and then even operationally, there's a multi-layered uh, process to go through when you're doing those operations. There is an exception, though. So around uh, sometime in the mid-1980s, Congress passed laws that did authorize the FBI to have jurisdictions in crimes where Americans were attacked overseas during a terrorism attack. So if there is a hostage-taking or a kidnapping of Americans and it's related to terrorism, the FBI has what is called extraterritorial jurisdiction, and they can go in, again, working with that country and actually conduct investigations overseas. But again, it has to be related to terrorism, and we still need to get permission from the host government in order to to work with that nation's law enforcement and security personnel. Right. So if you have a book or you have a screenplay and you have an FBI agent going to a foreign country and she's working on a case that is not related to terrorism, it's non-terrorism violation, such as, you know, a homicide or a robbery or a rape or a mugging, that doesn't happen. That was uh, number six. The number seven, you had also touched on it before, and that's the CSI effect. Again, you know, people having an unrealistic expectation of DNA and forensic analysis based on TV shows. Yeah, this is a tough one. I think prosecutors probably face this uh, as much, if not more, than us uh, because it deals with the jury. You know, I have many friends who are prosecutors, uh, former prosecutors. I work with one on a regular basis now, and she was a, a former federal prosecutor, and we do some TV projects together. And, you know, we've talked about this, and, you know, she had one or two trials where this actually occurred, and it wasn't until after because juries do not have to talk to the prosecutor after a case, and, you know, sometimes prosecutors don't ask. She used to be in the habit of asking, particularly if they, she got an adverse verdict, 
because you want to learn from the process, you know, learn from the mistakes if, if they were made or how the jury saw things. And, you know, unfortunately, when you're, when you're a prosecutor or an agent and your case is unfolding before a jury, you kind of don't know how they're processing it. And they can't, you know, raise their hand and ask the judge why the FBI didn't bring in the flux capacitor, you know, at a crime scene, not knowing that that doesn't even exist. They, that may not come up until deliberations in the deliberation room, and you may not hear about that until after a verdict is already rendered. And so prosecutors have to kind of be out ahead of this kind of issue if they think or if they somehow feel that it's going to be in the process. So I like I remember one time we recovered a weapon uh, with the dive team at the bottom of a, of a lake. It was pitch black, muddy, as were our most lakes were. This was a very small kind of almost a pond on a farm. And you know, you do it by feel, and we do it by, with metal detectors, and then the the diver would actually feel the weapon and put it into a container and bring it to the surface. I got questioned once on a weapon that I found in, in, a, in a circumstance like that on why I didn't take pictures of the weapon where it was found. Because normally, if you're on a dry land crime scene, you walk into a bedroom and there was a homicide, there's a gun laying on the floor, nobody touches it. You always photograph it in the actual position where it was found before anybody touches it. It's important. In the water environment and underwater crime scene, we couldn't do that. It was just not, it was not possible. And one of the reasons is you couldn't see it. And there are people who are out there, there are certain thing, people that will tell you, oh, there's things you can put in the water. There's these uh, tablets you can drop in the water and instantly it will clear up any water. Or you can fill a clear plastic bag with fresh water and hold it against something so you can shoot through. We've tried all those methods. I used to have vendors come in to me and try to sell me things like that, and we would test them, and they never worked. So the prosecutor in this case knew it, in the case I'm referring to, and when he had me on the stand and I was testifying about the weapon, finding the weapon, how I put it into the container, how I brought it up, he actually, before he let the defense cross-examine me on it, he asked me, did you take photographs? And I said, no. And he said, why? So I could explain that instead of being, you know, what cross-examination is. They cut you off. They only ask you yes or no questions, and they try to create a narrative that you can't explain because they cut you off at yes or no. So the prosecutor got out ahead of it. And because he was going to, the, the defense attorney would clearly say, well, you didn't take photographs of the gun, how you found it, so maybe something was tampered, maybe the gun didn't, you know, this must be a reason why you didn't take photographs. And he would leave it at that. And you wouldn't be able to, of course, examination, you're not able to explain it. So the prosecutor in that case got out ahead of that issue and asked me and then asked me why I didn't, allowing me to explain. So the jury got to hear that. Had he not been out in front of that, the defense attorney might have been able to raise that on cross-examination and not given me the ability to explain it. And then during closing arguments, he would have raised some nefarious reason why we didn't take photographs of the gun at the bottom of the lake. And so, you know, it's one of those things that prosecutors have to be mindful of. I think also when you talk about forensics and books and TV, it would be kind of refreshing to have a case where people do expect to see that. And just like in real life, there is no usable DNA evidence or fingerprints to be found at the crime scene. And that's, Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's but okay. I mean, I think people expect you to be able to find DNA all the time. You know what I mean? It's like if you didn't find it, then you were either negligent or, or something else when it could be just it wasn't found, there wasn't enough to test, or the person took forensic countermeasures at the crime scene. 
Another thing that is a cliche in TV shows about forensics is that that forensic examiner does it all. In reality, if you are an FBI examiner working in the lab, you have a specialty, you know, whether it is blood splatter or hair fiber or or fingerprints, you have a specialty and you only work on that specialty. And, And TV shows, they're bringing in all kinds of evidence to the same examiner that examiner may right. even be a, a pathologist, you know, actually, right. you know, doing uh, autopsies. And then right. sometimes that, that forensic examiner goes out in the field, and in most cases, that doesn't happen either. No. If you're a blood spatter analyst, you do blood spatter. And, and even with that, it may take three or four people to get all of that evidence in. You'll have the photographer at the scene who took the pictures of the blood spatter on the wall come in and introduce the photographs. You'll have somebody else come in and introduce something else, and then you'll have the actual examiner who analyzed the spatter pattern in the laboratory. So, I mean... You know, you're right. I mean, they, everybody has their expertise, and the case is stronger because everybody's a specialist. You can't be an expert in everything, and so, so if you want true experts, their testimony is going to be very narrow. All right, and again, we understand that due to time constraints and character development, that's why it happens. If you want to talk about forensics, say that you are a brand-new agent and you go down to the academy, don't expect it to be like on TV because it's not. Another thing is on TV shows, sometimes they show different labs that a uh, FBI field office has their own laboratory facilities. There's only one FBI lab, and that's located on the same side as the FBI Academy in Quantico. So don't get that wrong either. Right. I, I do also want to talk about chain of custody. Sometimes... When you see a TV show or you're reading a book, the investigator, the FBI agent, goes to a crime scene and they pull out a little baggie out of their pocket and they drop the evidence they just found in the little baggie and they take it back to the office. They carry it off. You know, yeah. yeah, they carry it off in this little baggie they pulled out of their pocket. Staying of custody and preservation of evidence is key because if you break the chain, then that evidence may not be acceptable and, and may not be allowed to be entered as evidence in court. That's right. You know, having worked on an FBI crime scene unit, what we call ERT, and my team was an underwater ERT, but I also worked dryland crime scenes with ERT, everything is documented and logged and vouchered, and there's such a heavy administrative trail of that evidence just to ensure that it never gets outside the chain of custody because if it does it can be suppressed and the jury may never ever see it and that becomes useless that key piece of evidence becomes useless so we go the extra 10 miles to make sure that we're going to be able to sit on the witness stand and say here's the chain and what it means by the chain is here's every single individual that has had possession or custody of this piece of evidence say a weapon from the time it was very, very, very first seen at the crime scene, when the, when the agent walked into that bedroom and that, that, that bloody gun was on the floor, every, once they bagged that, once that evidence, that FBI evidence agent bagged that evidence, every single person that's touched it or possessed it, be it the laboratory technician, be it somebody who transported it to the lab, be it somebody that transported it back from the lab, every single person that's possessed that 
piece of evidence right up until the day it's brought out in that courtroom is on a log and can be brought in to testify if needed. But that's why the log is there to show that that has never been outside of the custody of somebody we can bring to the witness stand and say, yes, I possessed it on this day between this hour and this hour. Then I put it in this vault, and the next time it was accessed, the next person come and say, on this date, I took it out of that vault, and I brought it over there. So, I mean, that's why it's so important. By the time it gets to the jury, you have a trail of every single person that's ever touched that piece of evidence from the very minute it was found at the crime scene. Excellent. And so hopefully we won't continue to see an FBI agent or an investigator pick up a piece of evidence and wrap it in a t- piece of tissue paper <laughs> to take to it back it in their, to their, their suit uh, pocket. Yeah, to take it back to the office because that ain't going to work. Right. One other thing that I learned doing these interviews is something that I found very interesting, and that is that the FBI laboratory is available for authorized law enforcement agencies throughout the United States. They can submit evidence to the FBI lab where it will be examined, and the FBI will provide expert testimony, and it's all free of charge. So I I thought that was pretty interesting. That's right, and I've seen actually FBI agents from the lab testify in high-profile state murder cases and things like that. I watch a lot of forensic files, and, and I, I've seen FBI agents who, you know, I know from watching the show have absolutely no connection to the case other than the, that evidence was sent by that local jurisdiction to the FBI uh, laboratory, and that laboratory technician in the FBI, you know, did the examination and now is back in state court testifying somewhere, and that's maybe the FBI's only attachment to that case. You know, it's not uncommon anymore to see that on on shows like Forensic Files, which are, you know, those are documentary shows, so those are true, and you actually see the FBI technician. uh, I think even in that Making a Murderer, that famous series of documentary that was made, I think there was an FBI agent examiner from the lab that testified in that trial. Very interesting. All right, number eight. We are at number eight already, and I got this one from interviewing Kevin Miles, who was a master bomb tech, And he said something that I was really taken back. And he said that being a bomb tech is not a dangerous job. I guess that's a a yes and a no. But yeah, he was explaining that. Interesting. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was explaining that back in the old days, um, before they had the automatic robots and the bomb suits. Yeah, a bomb tech was dangerous. You know, they didn't have the equipment that would keep them safe. But now. Because they have all of this extra training and these robots and absolutely fantastic equipment that it really is not like you would see in movies like Hurt Locker. They no longer do that real-life hand entry where the tech actually is using his own hands to uh, try to deactivate an unexploded uh, IED or, you know, a suspicious package. Right, and that's one of those things where technology has been brought to bear 
to greatly increase the safety of law enforcement people operating in a particular arena. So technology now with these robots, and, and we did the same thing. We had underwater robots that did uh, a lot of stuff. We would often train with the bomb techs on finding an explosive underwater. Literally, our underwater robot, we did a scenario here at a lake in California where our, our robot had handed off to their robot, and, and their robot came to the water's edge, and our robot brought it up to the water's edge, and then their robot dragged it off to a safe distance and then was able to examine it, and then they, they shot like a, a water charge into it to disable or to detonate the device, but do it in a safe area when everybody had been evacuated beyond, you know, the safe zone. So, so yeah, technology like that has, and Kevin was on my squad when we did that. And so that's an area where technology has really increased the safety margin for a, a specific uh, law enforcement job. Yeah, because I said to him, you know, why would anybody want to be a bomb tech? <laughs> you know, because it's so <laughs> dangerous. And that's what he explained to me, and, and I thought it was absolutely fascinating. He also said that there were two primary roles for a bomb tech, and that's to respond to calls about suspicious packages, and that's where you use that remote equipment to examine and to render safe possible explosive devices. And then he said they spend a lot of their time a lot more of their time processing post-blast bombing crime scenes. And, you know, the bomb has already exploded at that point, so I guess you are, in a sense, safe. Yeah, I mean, and certainly, and, and uh, one of the people, one of the bomb techs that worked for Kevin, Greg Levinovitz, and I came up with the uh, curriculum for an underwater post-blast school for underwater crime scenes that had been, you know, the subject of a, uh, a bombing or an explosion. And actually, the Dateline, NBC Dateline, this week or two nights ago, highlighted a case in Northern California where someone was blown up when they opened up a uh, electrical box on a farm and blew up, and they thought it was an industrial accident. And it turned out that the bomb techs found some material laying around um, that didn't fit an electrical box, and this was right next to a big irrigation facility that brought the water to the farm. They called us up in there, and we went in, and we found the, under, the, the debris from that electrical box, and we found components of the bomb in the water. So we did a post-blast, an underwater post-blast investigation, and they ultimately convicted you know, the owner of the farm's son because he found out he had written out of the father's will, and the father was going to leave the farm to the caretaker of the farm. We used to train uh, with the bomb techs because they would be the ones that ex would examine the evidence we brought back from underwater. We weren't bomb techs. We were divers. So we would bring back all of the debris, but we would carefully map it on the bottom of the water as best we could because the, the, the spread of the debris, how far it went and the pattern it was in could tell them something about how it exploded and what was used and how much was used to explode whatever blew it up. So... You know, there were steps that we worked with and we learned from the bomb techs what they needed, what information they needed, and we would gather as much of that information underwater as we could before we collected all those pieces and brought them to the top for their examination. There was also explosive examiners beyond the bomb techs back at the lab in Quantico who then would get it and test it for residue of certain material and things. The bomb techs could look at the how the metal was bent and shaped and things like that, and then, then it would go back to an explosive examiner at the FBI laboratory who would test it for explosive residue and things like that. Very interesting. So, again, if you're writing a book or a screenplay that has anything to do with a bomb tech, you may not want to have them placed in really dangerous situations because in real life, 
no one takes those risks anymore. They use uh, remote equipment, and safety is is at the, at the forefront. The Kingdom, starring uh, Jamie Foxx and Jennifer Garner, did a great job of showing an FBI team going overseas and conducting a, a post-blast investigation. And in, I think Saudi Arabia, yeah, the Kingdom. Um, and Chris Cooper played the bomb technician, kind of like a Kevin Miles role in, in that. And they they show how a post-blast investigation is done. They actually spent a lot of time with with our bomb techs here in Los Angeles and our evidence response team in Los Angeles preparing for those roles before they filmed the movie. And uh, I thought it was a very accurate portrayal of uh, an FBI ERT uh, evidence response team conducting a post-blast investigation actually overseas. Are we ready for number nine? Sure. Okay, number nine is FBI agents investigate murder. Now, yes, but under very special circumstances. I actually just got called on a TV show about this, and I actually did investigate a lot of of, of murders in, in my career because I used to do a lot of RICO cases in New York City, and there was a particular federal statute called murder in aid of racketeering. It was an actual federal violation. If you committed a murder to to maintain or increase your standing in a criminal organization, that's a federal crime and it falls under the FBI's jurisdiction if we're investigating the actual overriding criminal organization. Um, but beyond that, I didn't know too many, although I've recently been told by uh, by people that, uh, you know, they continually always add more violations to the FBI's jurisdiction, and now there are um, child murders and there are uh, serial murder statutes and stuff that are that are increasing. I think you will see more of it, but your run-of-the-mill, you know, type homicide that you see a lot of times is not going to be an FBI case. Right, exactly. Now, there are instances where the actual murder investigation does fall under the FBI jurisdiction, such as special maritime, where there's a vessel such as a, a Navy ship or a merchant marine and they're in international waters and they're, you know, they're nowhere. <laughs> they're, they're not in a country. They're just in the middle of the, of the ocean. That would be an example where it would fit under FBI jurisdiction. And of course, if the murder occurs on federal property, whether right. it be in a federal park or an Indian reservation, well, that does fall. That's a murder case, and it falls under the FBI jurisdiction. But in most instances where you see an FBI case that involves a murder, there's another violation that is leading the investigation, such as uh, a hate crime. You know, the victim's constitutional rights were violated when they were murdered. Or a a homicide that is relative to a kidnapping where the victim was taken across state lines and then killed. The FBI is involved in that case because of the interstate kidnapping, not necessarily the murder. Uh, Another example of of that would be a, a bank robbery. The witness or the security guard was murdered during a robbery of a federally insured bank. Usually there's a federal violation that is going on hand in hand with that homicide that allows the FBI to be involved in the murder case. 
And even at that, like when I used to uh, investigate my murder of Native racketeering, it was still a primarily still a local murder case. So the DA and, the, and in my case, the NYPD would be investigating it as a homicide, knowing that it was probably going to be charged in my RICO case eventually anyway. But they would still be primarily responsible for that homicide. So I would go to the autopsy with the NYPD detective that was assigned that case. It was really still his case until I charged it in my federal case. So it was handled as a local homicide, although I was with that guy every step of the way because the minute I got the call, they said one of your you know, gang members just killed somebody or was killed, and I would respond out to the homicide scene. The homicide guys, the local NYPD homicide guys, were already on the scene. Now, I did so much of that that my partner sponsored me for, and I was able to go to the six-week NYPD homicide school. So I actually went to their homicide school. But almost every homicide I charged was always a local homicide. It wasn't charged eventually if they would lift the charge or drop the charge in the state court if we were successful in federal court in getting it charged and convicted. But it was still primarily at its core, still a state homicide you know, that would be charged if our case fell apart or if we couldn't bring federal charges. They would always want the, to reserve the right to charge that as a local state homicide because it's always a state homicide. It's not always be able to be tied to a federal, but, but the ones that cross over both are still a state homicide and some local detective and local district attorney is going to be responsible for that. Uh, another example of, of that would be if the FBI has been working on a USAP warrant, unlawful flight to avoid prosecution warrant, where they are conducting a fugitive investigation. And that fugitive may have committed murder or murders. Well, once that fugitive has been located, then again, it goes back to the state where the murders occurred, and it's going to be prosecuted as a state case. And so, right. again, if you're writing a book or you're writing a screenplay, you know, if the FBI is investigating a murder, you better put why or include the federal jurisdiction or the federal violation that has them investigating it because a local murder, in most cases, the FBI is not going to be involved. All right. This one covers several of the cliches we've already talked about. There was a, a movie I watched recently. I think it's called Cold River. A murder happens in North Dakota, I think, um, and a young, single female FBI agent gets thrown up there. It's about her and the local, I think, forestry guy that uh, investigated oh, the homicide. Oh, I You saw that? Yeah. I think Jeremy Renner yeah, started it's, it. it was, and, uh, yeah, it's Wind River. And, and she Wind did River. have jurisdiction because, the, yeah, Wind River, and she did have jurisdiction because it did occur on the Indian Reservation. Yes, and I think they were, the guys there were pumping oil on a federal lease, like an oil lease, a federal oil lease or something. So it was federal land, and they were like a private company, but they were, they were operating on some kind of federal land lease where they were pumping, I think, oil out of the ground or something. I have a, a monthly email that I send out to people who join my reader team, and I talk about the FBI and books, TV, and movie, and this month's email is about Wind River, so that's why I know ah. it so well, because I actually reviewed the movie for accuracy. Ah. Although I love the movie, one of the things that they really got wrong in that movie was the shooting incident. I mean, she has this shootout, spoil alert. Oh, yes. People are killed. Nobody no comes team, to the no. bureau to, right. 
Right. No shooting team comes in, and normally that's that's very laden with bureaucracy. There's a lot of things that go on any time an agent fires their weapon, and particularly when it ends up with someone getting killed. Yeah. One of my listeners had asked me to watch the movie and let him know what I thought. The issue that he thought was wrong was the fact that she was sent out there alone, and that really is not an issue because there are, especially, this actually took place, I think it was, I think it was Wisconsin, and there are many resident agencies out in remote areas where there's only one or two agents. So the fact that she was sent there alone is not odd and is not inaccurate. Uh, There are many places where FBI agents work very closely with the locals as their partners and their backup. So that wasn't wrong, but the fact that they said that she came from Las Vegas is totally right. wrong because right. yeah. there are plenty of offices. Yeah, it just, it, that, that was, didn't make any sense. It's interesting because my wife had the same issue with it, that she was alone. And I I actually corrected her just like you did. I said, no, it's it's completely believable that she would own. But they did team her up with that Bureau of Indian Affairs, please. And those of us that work Indian reservations work know that the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, always has their own police that are that are patrolling the uh, the reservations and stuff. And you a lot of times hook up with the BIA police. And I think there was a a character in that movie that also played a BIA uh, police officer. So that was interesting that we both thought about the same movie. It's still a very good movie. It hits on a couple of the different uh, things we're talking about, right? And it hits on the FBI investigating a local, look look like a local murder, like a, you know, rape murder. You know, it also hit on the cliche of the single female FBI agent. So, I mean, it did, it it, it shows (laughs) why we talk about these cliches because they do exist. Right, exactly. But uh, I did enjoy the movie and I would still recommend it. Oh yeah, me too. Wind River, a very good movie, in spite of the cliches sprinkled throughout. All right, we're on the last one. And the the last one I really wanted to talk about because in so many of the interviews that I've done on the podcast, people talk about the relationship that they have with their subjects and with their informants. So this misconception or this cliche is a frequent storyline on TV shows and books and movies where the subject hunts down the agent after they get out of jail. You know, the bad guy has been sitting in jail and he's been thinking of all the different elaborate crimes and mind games that he will enact on on the agent once he gets out of jail. And this is really far from the truth in most cases. Now, the FBI is very cautious. I'm not saying that no FBI agent has ever been threatened, but I can tell you this, as soon as that threat is known and if it is believed to be real, that agent will be transferred out of that division. Uh, I've seen that happen many times. They don't let it get to a point where somebody's life is in danger. If the threat has been voiced and they believe that there is any possibility that agent will be transferred out. And I've seen that happen as well on numerous occasions. And and it's they always err on the side of being cautious. So even if it's 
you know, you could say, ah, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. The guy's getting moved. It's not, they're not going to take that chance. I mean, the Bureau transfers enough people around every year just, just because people want to be transferred around. So it's not afraid to transfer people around. And when they even have a whiff of danger possibly facing an agent because they are located in a particular geographic area, they will um, not hesitate to move that agent. But, and I think you'll agree with this, in most cases, it really is just the opposite. I have had, and I'm not talking about one or two, I have had many of the subjects that have gone to jail in the cases that I've worked, in my cases, who have actually called me from jail to let me know what their assignments are. You know, I'm in the kitchen, or I'm on the painting, oh, sure. or I'm on, they call and after they get out, I actually did an episode with one of the subjects in my case. I did an FBI retired case law review episode where I had him on and we talked about the investigation. He was a business-to-business telemarketing fraud, you know, taking millions of dollars from from businesses, and, and he came on. But that's just one of the examples. So many times the relationship between the agents and the people that we investigate is a cordial relationship, and that's based on the fact that we treat everyone with respect. Oh, yeah. I mean, before I retired, my desk was adorned with the small pottery Buddhas that one of my defendants, who I got a pretty substantial term in jail, um, and then he got into pottery class, and he would send me these, these Buddhas. That was his kind of thing, and I had probably four or five of them over the years on my desk. One was actually pretty prominent, pretty big. And I used to get kidded about it, that they, they were tainted with some poison that was going to leak out and I was going to breathe it in or whatever. And, but it was just because I had, I got, he, while he got a substantial prison term, he got substantially less than he would have had I not gone to bat for him with the judge. And so um, he used to call me, actually still calls me, I, he gets patched through to the office, he doesn't have my number. But we maintained contact uh, for, you know, many, 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 many years while he was in prison. And it was because of the, the relationship I had developed with him. And he knew that but for my in, in, intervening in his cause, he probably would have spent the rest of his life in jail. This, uh, again, is a, a cliche, a, a storyline that looks good, especially in a thriller. I mean, it's nice to, to put the agent, you know, in, in harm's way. But in reality, in most cases, the bad guys, the subjects in our cases, understand that we're doing our job. And, you know, we can do it in a way that still treats them with respect. And because of that, you know, we are able to get people to cooperate and to understand that we're just doing our job. So in most cases, there is no threat or somebody wanting to get back at us for doing what we uh are paid to do. Right. So we have come to the end. That was our last one. I do want to say that the FBI actually has an investigative publicity and public affairs unit. When I was a spokesperson in Philly, I kind of worked for them. I worked for directly for the SAC, the special agent in charge in Philly, but I also had responsibilities to the public affairs unit at FBI headquarters. They work very closely, of course, with the news media, but also with writers and producers to make sure that they have the information, that they can have their questions answered so that they can create an accurate portrayal of the FBI. And I will put a link to their 
webpage on the FBI website which explains what you need to do in order to get in touch with the public affairs if you have any questions as a writer or a, a producer. I also will link an article from Business Insiders that I did with a couple of other retired agents titled 11 Things Hollywood Gets Wrong About Being an FBI Agent. And so you can look at that for some things that we did not cover either in episode 50 with the first 10 cliches and misconceptions and in this episode 100 with the second group of cliches and misconceptions. I do have a reader team and once a month I send out a digest of the episodes, the FBI Retired Case File Review episodes from the previous month. I send out crime fiction recommendations and I review about what they get right or what they get wrong about the FBI and TV and movies. So if you're interested in becoming a member of the reader team and getting that monthly digest, all you need to do is go to my website, jerrywilliams.com and sign up when you see the pop-up, or go to my FBI author page, and you'll see Jerry Williams author, and you'll see the sign-up button there. So I do want to let you know that looking at cliches and misconceptions in the FBI doesn't have to end with this episode. You can hang out with me every month and get that email and continue looking at different TV shows and movies, like Mindhunter. Did you see Mindhunter? I did. I loved it. I thought it was one of the best TV series about the FBI I had ever seen. I just loved the character development. I just loved their vulnerability. I loved their interaction with local and state law enforcement. I loved their interaction with their families, with the partnership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was based on John Douglas's book. Uh, you know, John Douglas was the, the grandfather of all criminal profiling. And it was basically about his role in setting up what later became the BAU or the Behavioral Analysis Unit. It was kind of the early days and the early workings of John and his partner. The younger character is John, is John Douglas, um, although the character's name was changed at John's request. And so, uh, yeah, I thought it was great. I thought the way they, you know, I was involved in creating a first-of-its-kind bureau program, as John was with the BAU when I set up the underwater forensic program. And so I really appreciated the fact that they showed that sometimes things at the bureau get pushed down the road. The ball gets advanced down the field. You know, just by one or two agents working really hard and believing that what they're doing can help, and sometimes in spite of management and not because of management. And you did see <laughs> the characters in that in that series, you know, get some pushback on what they were doing by management. I don't begrudge management that. I always found, just like my legal cases, the stronger my case became, the more you challenged me and the more you made me work hard to prove myself or to prove my case, the stronger my case got. And so I think you saw that, why management was challenging them to justify setting this this new program up. I got the same resistance from management, you know, to spend money on, you know, an underwater forensic program as they got when they were setting up this psychological profiling unit back in the mid to late 70s. I mean, it was unheard of. And now we couldn't imagine the Bureau without it. I thought it did a great job. I I think you're right. I think the character development, it was rich. It was deep. It was well-written and well-acted. I loved the period piece. I loved the fact that they they had all the 70s cars and clothing and music. 
you know, I just thought it was a really well done show. I really, really enjoyed it. I, I did too. And the cliffhanger ending was absolutely fantastic. And we won't give it away. We won't do a, uh, <laughs> we, we won't give anything away, but I thought it was fantastic. And of course, I have to say, if we're going to talk about Mind Hunter, we have to talk about Man Hunter with our good friend, Jim Fitzgerald. I thought the TV series about the Unabomber was also well done. That was a composite character. I know he got a lot of flack from people thinking he was trying to take, all the credit. take credit, which was not the case at all. Right. It was the writer's decision to create a composite character. They decided to name that composite character Jim Fitzgerald, but that was not at all Jim trying to take credit for the entire investigation? Not at all. I, I work with Jim on a regular basis, and uh, both Jim Fitzgerald and Jim Clemente, who actually wrote the original script, and Jim got credit for it. But when it was sold to Kevin Spacey's production company, they felt they needed to make those changes in the original script, and they kept Jim's Fitzgerald's name attached to the character because they wanted that realism. They wanted it to be a real person, and it is. And much of the work that that character does in the movie was done by Jim. Jim did kind of find, you know, the field of forensic linguistics. I mean, he didn't do everything, and he'll be the first to admit he didn't do everything that the character does in the show, and that script was rewritten once it was sold. You know, again, I think it accurately portrays at least the overall Bureau at Large. That's just one of those, you know, compromises that have to be made in, in that creative process and, and uh, to make the story move forward. And although it was rewritten to some extent, um, I think the, the, the genesis and the, the main thrust of, of Jim Clemente's script and, and Jim Fitzgerald's story comes through in that, in that series. I'm excited to let you know that I actually interviewed Gary Nesner, whose book is the basis of the new six-part series, Waco, this new TV series. And the character in the Waco TV series is called Gary Nesner. I interviewed Gary, and it's going to be the episode that follows this. So episode 101 is an interview with Gary, and he talks about the real-life Waco. And we also talk about the things that may be in the TV show that people may have issues with, such as the composite character. So I'm very excited that I have that interview and that I'll be able to post that episode next week. I look forward to hearing that. And one of the things that Gary did tell me was that it's really balanced. The FBI is not the good guy and the Branch Davidians, you know, are not the bad guy. They, they show the good side of what the Branch Davidians wanted and they do show the mistakes that the FBI made in the way they handled the siege. One last thing I want to say, and then I'll give you the last word. I have created a FBI reading resource, which is a resource list of all of the FBI books, books about the FBI that have been written by the agents that I have interviewed on this podcast. So this resource is an exclusive list of crime fiction, true crime, and memoirs from all the agents that I've interviewed I now have more than 30 books on there. So if you really want to know how to get the FBI right when uh, you are putting together your, your script or, or your book, then you definitely want to check out those books on the FBI reading resource. And, of course, my book, Pay to Play, about a female FBI agent investigating corruption 
and the Philadelphia strip club industry is on that list. And I do have my second book coming out later this spring called Greedy Givers. So, Bobby, I'm giving you the last word. What would you like to say before we sign off? Oh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's it's an honor, actually, to be on your show, and this is my third time now, and I, I really think this is an important service you're bringing, um, not only to, you know, writers and, and people that are doing creative endeavors, but also to the agents that, that are out there that, that that don't have an outlet for their stories to be told. And, and so I, I really want to thank you for having me on. I know firsthand I'm writing now, I'm writing, I'm writing both a book, a movie, and a TV series, and I understand the challenges that come with you know, with all the things we've spoken about today. And, and so I, you know, I hope that everybody listening to this understands that there's no right or wrong. You just try to do the best you can and you try to tell the story to uh, honor the people that, that lived it as best you can. And most of the time it's possible if you, if you make a, make the effort. People can find me on the internet. I have a YouTube channel and I have a, a, a website, bobbychacone.com. You can see me there and contact me through there, or they can get a hold of you, and you always know how to get a hold of me. And uh, just I love working in this field with people like you uh, who are creative and, and, and know, this, know this industry and know this field, and, and it's, just, it's just an honor. So thank you. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetire.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired agents and analysts interested in showcasing their careers to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.